This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so very grateful for the fact that you have revealed your word to us. You've revealed your word to us in such a way that it consistently and continuously forces us to read through it, study through it, reevaluate our understanding of it, forcing us to probe its depths, its implications, and application. Father, understanding your word is often a challenge, not because you have not made it clear, but sometimes because it's clear, but it seems so contrary to our own sin nature and our own self-absorbed agenda. Father, it's our prayer that as we study your word today that we might come to understand the truth of what our Lord was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, but also that God the Holy Spirit would make it clear to us how we need to apply these things in our own lives and our own thinking, and that we might be responsive to that teaching and put forth the application that is required. And Father, we pray that you guide and direct our thinking today in Christ's name. Amen. Moving on in the Sermon on the Mount, today we're going to look at a little bit larger section, Matthew 5, 33 to 42. I've titled this, Swearing Oaths and Slapping Cheeks. And I'm not talking about what goes on in the sideline by the bench during a football game. This is a important section, especially the second one that we'll be looking at, but it does have a important application for us as we go through this particular section. I want to remind you, just by way of review, of the context in the Sermon on the Mount. This is always a matter of great debate among commentators, among theologians, among those who are handling the Word of God. I've said this before. I've even had a few people say, now, why do you say this is one of the most difficult sections to interpret? And that is for a variety of reasons it's, a di- it's difficult to interpret. And I think one reason that it is difficult to interpret is something I alluded to last week when we talked about the section dealing with the marriage and the exception clause in relation to, to remarriage, and that is that Jesus is not saying everything there could be said about each of these topics. That's not his purpose. When we read through the context of the Sermon on the Mount, especially this particular section, Jesus is addressing particular topics of erroneous teaching that was present in rabbinical thought during the latter period of the Second Temple period. 
He is fundamentally addressing their concept of experiential righteousness. Now, that sentence right there is one that has uh, is great, greatly controversial. A view that is common that you have probably heard before. Uh, I was reading something on this the other day, and it was re- actually this view was referred to as the Lutheran view, and I did, wouldn't have assigned it to that because there are many evangel- other evangelicals who hold that view, and that is that the entire Sermon on the Mount is designed to teach that the righteousness God requires is not capable of being produced in us. And therefore, to boil it all down, in their view, the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to say, see, this is the kind of righteousness God requires. You can't achieve it. Therefore, you have to uh, gain righteousness another way, which is righteousness by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, that's true. The issue is, is that what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And as we go through this, the thing that has impressed me more and more is that uh, when Jesus goes back to the Mosaic Law in each at the beginning of each of these, he cites the foundational passage in the law that is subject to misinterpretation by the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are addressing this in terms of the spiritual life of the nation. If we go back to the original context in the Mosaic Law, the context of these commandments was not uh, teaching a way to gain salvation. It was addressed to a nation that was viewed as a redeemed nation, and the Mosaic Law was laying down a code of conduct, a way of life, that should characterize a nation that was termed by God a kingdom of priests. And in the Old Testament, the idea was that as the Israelites obeyed the law and applied the law consistently, that they would be a distinct, unique, holy, that's what holy means, distinct and unique nation. And as people, travelers, businessmen, caravanners, uh, traveled through this junction in the Middle East because Israel is set at the at the center of all the east-west, north-south trade routes, they would see a distinct and unique people, and they would marvel at their freedom. They would marvel at the way God had blessed them. They would marvel at their whole culture, and then they would go home and they would take the gospel in the Old Testament sense back to their nations. In contrast, in the church age, we're told to go out to the nations. But Israel was set in the middle, midst of the nations to, so that as people came to them, they would see the difference. So the Mosaic law is basically related to experiential righteousness, not imputed righteousness. And when Jesus is commenting on this in Matthew 5, he's talking about experiential righteousness, the kind of righteousness that would characterize those who had repented in light of the imminency of the coming of the kingdom. The reality is that some people needed to repent in terms of trusting in the promised seed of of the woman who would be the redeemer of Israel, the Messiah, but many needed to live a life of righteousness as described by the law, a life of tzedakah, 
as it's stated in Hebrew. And so this has been distorted. It's been simplified. It's been minimized, is a, would be a better word, by the, by the Pharisees. They've given people a way around full obedience to the law. This is why Jesus made the comment in verse, uh, verse 19, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. This was what the Pharisaical or religious view was doing, was it was teaching this minimalized view of, of, uh, of application. And so Jesus challenges this. One of the problems was in the way they frequently swore or made oaths or made vows in, the, uh, in their thinking. So he begins, Jesus begins in Matthew 5.33 by stating, as he's been doing in the previous three examples, by stating what, the, what was taught in the Torah, in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic Law. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old. That is referring to the uh, Pharisaical interpretation, which they said represented an oral tradition that was handed down since Mount Sinai. So their view was there are two, two tracks. There's the written law, and then there's an oral tradition, Haggadah, that is being passed down uh, orally from generation to generation, and it's this oral law that was used to interpret the written law. So this is what Jesus refers to, those of old. The mandate, you shall not swear falsely. This is not talking about uh, uttering some sort of profanity. It is making an, an oath, perhaps in court or performing a vow. He goes on to say, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the law, to the Lord. Now this relates to a couple of Old Testament passages we need to uh, look at briefly, just to understand the background. Leviticus 19.12 says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Now, profaning the name of our God means to use God's name in a common manner. Often we hear people relate to not taking the Lord's name in vain. That's the same kind of thing, and usually that's simplified to attaching God's name to uh, some other curse word, taking uh, using the name of Jesus in, as a curse word. And while that fits within the application of this, that's a rather superficial application of this. I think a more serious application of this would be when someone in some denominations, either in a worship service or maybe privately in conversation, says, well, God has spoken to my heart and wants me to do X, Y, or Z. They're claiming divine authentication for a course of action that God has not given. They're claiming insight and revelation from God in a way that no longer goes, uh, that no longer takes place. And this is a problem. It is attaching God's name to a cause when God has not personally attached his name to that cause or to that statement or to that system. 
And this is what the scriptures talk about when he says profaning the name of God is taking his name or using it in a light or trivial manner. And this happens in Christian communities many ways other than using some sort of, of expletive or stating some sort of profanity. It is claiming something to be uh, authenticated and validated by God when, in fact, it has not. Uh, not been. Numbers 30, verse 2, If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now, this is the idea here, making a vow is the Hebrew word neder. In fact, there's a whole tractate, a whole section, large, very large section in the Mishnah called the Nedarim, just dealing with vows and all of the uh, different ways you can make a vow, different kinds of vows that could be made. And this was not uncommon in the in Pharisaical thought. And so it was putting oneself under a particular binding oath to do something, and then they would call upon God in order to validate or authenticate that. Uh, biblically, there are different vows that are mentioned. There's the Nazarite vow, for example, in Numbers chapter 6. There are some other vows that are mentioned. Uh, we know the Apostle Paul took a vow as he was in Corinth, and then uh, and he when he was leaving, and then and shaved his head. So these were different types of vows. And the basic warning is not to do so rashly or abruptly, and putting yourself under an obligation that you can't fulfill, because the Lord emphasizes the importance of this. Passages like Deuteronomy 5.11, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That's the idea, is I'm going to uh, make a vow to God to do something, and then you're, you, you don't fulfill it. You have taken God's name in an empty or trivial manner. Deuteronomy 23.21 through 23 states, When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. In other words, you don't have to make a vow. Don't do it because it makes you feel like you're more spiritual or that you've gotten caught up with the emotion of the moment, and then you can't fulfill it. If you take a vow and you don't fulfill it, it's a sin, but if you uh, don't take the vow, make a vow at all, then it's not a sin. Verse 23 says, That which has gone from your lips you shall keep and perform, for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Each of these verses warns the Israelite about making these rash vows, being impetuous, and that they need, need to be very careful to observe what they say because there are consequences to what we say. It's a warning against the sin of the tongue. Another couple of verses, Proverbs twenty twenty five. It's a snare for a man to devote rashly something as holy 
and afterward to reconsider his vows. Ecclesiastes 5, 4, and 5 state, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to pay, than to vow and not pay. So we've seen each of these kind of examples in the law and then restated in wisdom literature as something that we should pay attention to or that the Old Testament Jews should pay attention to. We'll see that this kind of command is still restated in the New Testament, not only by Jesus in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, but it's restated again by James in the Epistle to James. So Jesus is going to correct the notion, the false interpretation given by the by the Pharisees. The word that is translated to swear falsely is the word ep, epiorkeo. Epiorkeo. The, the, there's a prefix there in the Greek, epi. Or keo is a word meaning to swear an oath. It is related to a, a, a cognate verb. Look at the, it's got an O-R-K there. That's your, your lexical root. The cognate verb is horkizo, where if you put an, a, 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 another prefix on it, it becomes exorkizo, where we get our word exorcism. It was used by pagan religious actors who were trying to cast out demons. Exorcism was never uh, used of anything that Jesus did. It always described activities by pagans who were trying to cast out demons. And it was using some sort of an oath, swearing some sort of an oath before God in order to gain power over the demon. And so these were, uh, this is how you have this, this similar cognate, uh, cognate meaning. So the basic meaning of this word, this form of the word, epiorkeo, is to uh, swear falsely. This would be in a courtroom setting. This is not talking about somebody who is uttering an epithet on the street corner. This is talking about uh, taking an oath and swearing falsely in court, uh, breaking an oath, making a vow and then not fulfilling it, or committing perjury. So Jesus addresses this, and the basic idea of swearing means to perform a or to make a solemn declaration or statement, and what they would do is they would appeal to God or to some other in uh, pagan religions to one of the gods or goddesses, or they would appeal to some sacred object that would give a greater validation or verification to the truth of what they were uh, what they were saying now in the context of pharisaical theology uh, the pharisees were notorious as i stated earlier there's an entire section in the mishnah a large section dealing with oaths and the pharisees were notorious for their oaths and they would make these oaths on the least provocation, they would say, well, I, they would teach them, say, I swear this is true, on, and then they would validate it on, on heaven or swear on the basis of earth or swear on the basis of something else in the creation. Also, they would make various allowances. It was like they were crossing their mental fingers behind their back so that 
there was always some hidden exception, some sort of mental reservation that they wouldn't really have to fulfill that oath because they hadn't made the oath in the name of God. They swore by heaven, they swore by earth, they swore by Jerusalem. But see, that's not swearing by God. The oath, they said, is only really binding if you swear by God. So they were swearing by other things. This was, uh, again, a very common practice. This is what Jesus corrects when we get into verses 34 through 36. He says, but I say to you, do not swear at all. See, the contrast isn't correcting the swearing to a narrower thing. He's saying don't swear at all. And then he said, he gives four examples that relate to the ways in which they would swear their oath, neither by heaven nor by earth nor by Jerusalem, verse 36, nor by your head. In each one he gives an, an explanation of this. Now in the Old Testament... There were two prominent examples of how Jews rashly entered into vows. One of them is in the book of Judges. In Judges 11:29 to 39, we have one of the judges by the name of Jephthah who made an extremely rash vow. He was called by God to deliver Israel from the oppression of the Midianites. He had been out of the out of the, he was basically born over in the Transjordan. He grew up among a lot of brigands and thieves and whatever. He doesn't have a great background. He's the son of a prostitute. He's, but he is a worshiper of God. But he's in the period of the judges, which is characterized by the phrase that everyone did. There's not an exception there. It doesn't say everyone but the judges. Always remember that. It says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no there was no king in Israel at that time. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So Jephthah did what was right in his own eyes. He doesn't have much doctrine in his soul. God has called, called him and empowered him to deliver Israel militarily. That's why we have the phrase, the Holy Spirit came upon him. That's not like the filling of the Spirit today or anything related to the spiritual life. It was an empowerment for a particular task, and that task was a military task to have victory over the um, enemies of the Ammonites. I said Midianites earlier, the Ammonites uh, coming in and invading Israel. And he's he's got this eclectic theology that's half pagan and half uh, biblical, and he thinks that he has to do something to impress God so that God will give him the victory. God's already promised him the victory, but this is the kind of human th- viewpoint thinking that is common. Uh, this is, we see this today. One example is one I frequently mention when we take up the offering, that people think somehow God's going to bless me more if I give more, that we're somehow manipulating God's grace. And that's what Jephthah was trying to do. And so he makes this this vow to God, a rash vow, that that if God would give him victory over the Ammonites, that when he returned from battle, whatever came out of the door of his house to greet him, he would sacrifice to the Lord. He would make an ola offering, which means, basically word means to go up. It's the word for a burnt offering. Now, you may have heard people try to interpret this as as something else, but the first thing to come out of his 
house to greet him when he came home was his daughter. She came running out of his house to throw her arms around her, her dad to congratulate him on his victory. But he's not so happy because he realizes now he has to sacrifice her as a burnt offering to God. Now, that's made a lot of people uncomfortable over the years, Jews and Christians alike. In the Middle Ages, a rabbi, very well-known rabbi who changed several traditional interpretations by the name of Rabbi David Kimchi was the first to say, well, they were just, it was an oath to dedicate her to the service of Yahweh, and she would uh, uh, never be married, so she was going to be perpetually a virgin, and so she was going to become somewhat associated with a group of women who served at the tabernacle. Trouble is, there's no real evidence for that, number one. Number two, there's no evidence that the word ola means anything other than a literal burnt offering. And number three, this is a pagan practice, and, and Jephthah is not portrayed as being particularly spiritual. And so he, it shows the, it's, a, it's an example of how even the leaders were operating on uh, spiritual relativism because they were influenced by the Canaanite culture around them. And so he's made an extremely rash vow, and the scripture says he did unto her as he vowed, which can only mean that he offered her as a burnt offering. Now, people have said, well, he must have understood that it would be a human being running out of the door of his house, and that's not true. Uh, recent uh, evidence has shown, when looking at houses of that period, that especially those who were that were rural, that that part of the enclosure of the of the house would include a place where they would bring animals in to shelter them, their favorite animals in to shelter them at night or shelter them in cold weather. We've studied this when we've studied about the manger, that the manger wasn't in a cave somewhere outside of Bethlehem, but it was this inner room inside the house. Some of us might uh, relate that to almost like using your garage as a place where you bring your pets in the winter, your dogs, your cats, and put them in there so it's they're not out in the cold. They would bring lambs or goats or whatever inside. They would have a manger there where they would feed them and take care of them. So he's thinking, and archaeology has confirmed this in the last 20 years or so, and he's thinking that what's going to come out in the morning is going to be a, a goat or a lamb or a sheep, something like that. And he's surprised when it's his daughter that comes out, but he was forced by his pagan understanding to offer her as a as a burnt offering. Another example of a false vow in the Old Testament, a foolish vow made by Saul, was found in 1 Samuel 14, 24 to 45, 1 Samuel 14, 24 to 45, where he was in, in the midst of a battle against the Philistines, and he made this rash vow that, that because they needed to press the battle, they needed to pursue it, and they needed to defeat the Philistine army, he said, I prohibit anybody from eating until we finish the battle. Well, of course, that's foolish because the soldiers need to eat so they can replenish their energy and so they can keep fighting. And his son, Jonathan, was leading a uh, uh, leading one of the units against the Philistines and became famished, and he ate. And so then he had broken Saul's vow, so Saul's punishment that he had stated was that anyone who ate food before the battle was over would die. Now Saul is 
by virtue of his vow, forced to sacrifice his son. It's another example of a pagan concept of a vow. Uh, In this case, the people prevented him from fulfilling the vow because they were not going to uh, let him sacrifice his son. So what we see here is, again, an example of not taking a vow and jumping into it too soon. Now, as we look at this passage, the idea of taking vows, one thing that we need to say is that Jesus is not prohibiting the taking of an oath in a court of law. Uh, When you go to court, when you are a witness, you swear on a Bible, you take a vow that you're going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. There are some religious groups who take this in a woodenly literal manner, falsely, well, when we get in the next section, we'll talk a little more about figures of speech. But there are a couple of passages that we have to remember from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6.13 states, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. So it's legitimate in certain circumstances to take an oath in the name of the Lord. Uh, swearing in court would be one of those. Uh, Deuteronomy 10.20 says basically the same thing. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. And so that was, that was considered, um, considered legitimate. The idea that Jesus is countering here is that unless the name of God was specifically mentioned, then the oath was not really binding. And so they would substitute something else like heaven or earth or Jerusalem or their own head uh, as a way to avoid that. And they're simply saying, okay, everything else I say, well, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, maybe it's a white lie, but now I have to add an oath in order to make you really believe that now I'm telling you the truth. So this... um, this goes to uh, the fact that they weren't always telling the, uh, the the entire truth. Now, the problem that Jesus points out here is that um, if they swear by heaven, uh, heaven is actually the throne of God, so you're still swearing by God even though you haven't used his name. So you have your, your little tradition to try to sidestep the issue of swearing by God's name doesn't work there doesn't work with the earth because the earth is God's footstool. And uh, this is uh, stated in a similar way in Isaiah 66.1, that the earth is the footstool of God's feet. So you can't avoid God's presence by swearing by the earth. You can't do it by swearing on Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the city of God's king. It is not man's city, so when you swear by Jerusalem, you're still invoking God because this is the city of his king. And then finally in verse 36, when you swear on your own head, you have to recognize your head is created in, you are created in the image and likeness of God. So once again, you can't escape God, God's presence by swearing on these other things. So ultimately, uh, your oaths are all just as valid. You have to have a a better concept of telling the truth. What Jesus is saying is that the righteous person's word 
should always be sufficient. He should not ever need to add something in addition to it. Uh, he should never need to say, well, I'm, I'm now going to make you understand this by swearing it in a certain way that, that, that this is especially true. Uh, this is why Jesus says in Matthew 5.37, let your yes be yes and your no, no. In other words, be very simple. It should always be the truth. Never deviate from the truth. Never a shadow of a doubt. And then he says, for whatever is more than this is from the evil one. Now, why in the world would he state that this is from the evil one? Remember, Satan is the father of lies. And so the implication is that if you ever need, if everything you say is the absolute truth, never varies, then you never need to say, oh, I need to invoke an oath so you know that what I'm saying now is really the truth. The very fact that you think you need to say, I swear this is true, implies that there are other things that you say that may not be as true. So that's what's implied by swearing an oath, needing to swear an oath is that some things are true and some things aren't quite so true. Jesus is saying if you're righteous, if you're a believer, everything you say uh, should be true. And otherwise, uh, you've fallen into the trap of lies from Satan and you're saying some things that are true maybe and some things that are not so true. This verse is restated in James 5.12, where James says, Above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Remember, James is also writing to an audience that is primarily Jewish background believers. And so he's addressing the same issue. There are a lot of similarities between what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount and what James teaches in the Epistle of James. And he says, let your yes be yes, and you know no, lest you fall into judgment or under condemnation. So the point that Jesus is making is you don't need to make formulaic promises calling upon something in creation to substantiate a statement as being true. If you are truly righteous, every statement is equally true, and you never need to do something to emphasize the truth of a current statement. That is the fourth correction Jesus made. The fifth correction begins in verse 38 and goes down to verse 42. This deals with the law of called lex talionis, the law of retribution, which is quoted again from several passages in the Old Testament. It is a clear statement from the law, but Jesus is going to challenge the interpretation given to it by the Pharisees. He says, you've heard that it was said... An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, that is not, he's not quoting the entire passage where these things are said, so I want to show you a couple of these passages. Exodus 21, 23 to 25 states, but if any harm follows, if you have, this is the case where two men are fighting, there's a woman that gets involved in the tussle, she's pregnant, and causes her to prematurely give birth. Uh, and so as a conclusion to that, we read, but if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, 
burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, I'm going to make a significant point as we go through this in talking about figures of speech and why it's important to understand these as figures of speech. The first one, life for life, is clearly seen to be literal. This is indicated from the establishment of capital punishment and the delegation of authority to take life in, De- in uh, Genesis chapter 9 in the Abra- I mean, excuse me, in the Noahic covenant, when God said, "If any man sh- any man sheds man's blood, by man his blood should also be shed." Numerous places reinforce the principle of capital punishment in the Old Testament. These passages are among them. So by looking and comparing Scripture with Scripture, we see that the phrase life for life is indeed understood literally, but the rest isn't. This is one of those things that makes interpreting Scripture uh, fun. If you take all of these literally, then that would mean if somebody poked out somebody's eye, then the judicial penalty would be that their eye would be poked out as well. Or if they were fighting and one man knocked a tooth out of the other man through a well-landed right cross, then the man who punched him would have to give up a tooth. Uh, Same thing, if he injured his hand, then the one who uh, caused the injury would have to have his hand injured foot for foot, burn for burn. In other words, you understand that this would have to be done literally. But the law was never applied that way. The purpose for the law was to establish the principle that the penalty should not exceed the crime. The penalty should not exceed the crime. The penalty should fit uh, fit the crime. And so this, these phrases are used in a figurative sense in order to get across the fact that the penalty should fit the crime. Stated again, Leviticus 24:19. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, as he has done, so shall it be done to him. But you don't find this anywhere in the application of the law that people in Israel, there were a lot of people walking around with various disfigurements because it was understood in the original, to the original audience that this is a figure of speech. And this is describing simply uh, a penalty that was uh, sufficient for the crime. It goes on to verse 20, fracture for fracture. You didn't have a lot of people. Well, the penalty today is that the defendant will have his arm broken. That's not how it's applied. Uh, verse 21, whoever kills an animal shall restore. There was a penalty. Usually there was a financial penalty that was developed, that was assessed in relation to what the injury was so that the penalty fit the crime. Deuteronomy 19.21, your eye shall not pity, life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So this establishes the basic principle of the of the statement. In these contexts, as you see, these are not statements related to personal retribution, but these are guidelines for magistrates in assigning the appropriate uh, penalty in the courtroom for for uh, violating the law. In each of these statements, we see that figures of speech are used. This is important to understand because much of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, even, are based on figures of speech. And this is what causes a lot of 
A misinterpretation is that we don't understand the nature of the figures of speech. This is particularly true in verse 39. Jesus says, But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. This is an important verse to understand. Frequently you see people who read through the Sermon on the Mount, accurately understand various figures of speech. They come to this, and all of a sudden, they take it literally. Let me ask you a question. You think we really had a problem with with face-slapping in Israel? That every day there was somebody who just slapped somebody else in the face. Now, that wasn't going on. That's not the issue. Slapping someone in the face, as we'll see as we go through this, was is really an idiom for someone who has uh, offended or insulted somebody in some way. It's not talking about a literal slap on the literal literal cheek. The Bible is filled with these kinds of idioms, similes, metaphors, and other figures of speech. Just think with me about some of these. In Matthew 4, Jesus told the disciples, I will make you fishers of men. See, he's not literally going to teach them how to bait a hook, a literal hook, and throw it into a mass of people and catch a human. He's using a metaphor where he is comparing a literal activity of fishing in the lake and bringing in a catch to uh, evangelism and announcing a message and bringing in a group of people who've responded positively uh, to that message. And Jesus used a simile when he describes the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13, 31 is like a mustard seed. There's something about a mustard seed that is comparable and analogous to the kingdom of of heaven. Jesus also said it's uh, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, and he's talking about a sewing needle uh, because of the word that is used there, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is not talking literally. He's using hyperbole, which is a figure of speech, or exaggeration. We saw that the same thing last week when we looked at um, uh, the statement in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. You don't find a lot of one-eyed Christians in the first or second century. Jesus went on to say, if... Uh, your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, and cast it from you. You didn't find a lot of one-handed Christians in the early church. You didn't find a lot of one-handed disciples. People understood these to be figures uh, figures of speech and to be talking in exaggeration. Matthew 7, 15, Jesus talked about false prophets as those who come to you in sheep's clothing. Did false prophets actually go out, skin a sheep, and put on, use the, uh, the, the sheepskin in order to create their wardrobe? No, he's using that as a, as a point of analogy, as, as a metaphor, in the same way he talked about, told the disciples to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's not talking about literal sheep. But when we talk about literal interpretation, which may not, it, when we use that word literal, we, it gets a little uh, ambiguous at times. Because in literal historical, or a better way would be to talk about historical grammatical interpretation, language used in its plain normal sense, we make allowance for the fact that within our normal use of language, uh, we have idioms 
and metaphors that are non-literal, but they have a fixed meaning. For example, if I talk about somebody who has recently deceased, I might say, well, he bought the farm. Now, most of you know what that means. Some of you may not, but the origin of that idiom goes back. It's a military idiom that relates back to a former era when soldiers would retire out of the military and they would take their retirement and they would go buy a farm. And it wouldn't be long before they might die. And so the idea of buying the farm became a metaphor for someone who has died, who has passed away. And so, but when people hear that phrase, they can't just assign any meaning to it. They know it doesn't literally mean that they bought a piece of real estate, but it does mean that they have, they have died, they have passed away. And so we understand what that means. The same thing is true when we look at this phrase. Now, before we understand what he's talking about when he's talking about cheek slapping here, we need to understand the first phrase. He says, I tell you not to resist an evil person. Now, the Greek phrase here for the evil one is paneros. It could be taken to be, the form could be either neuter or masculine. If it was neuter, it would refer to a principle of evil or refer to Satan. But that would contradict a number of scriptures where we are told to resist the devil and he will flee from us. Same word, antistemi, which means to resist, oppose, or set oneself against something. So it should be taken as a masculine form, and Jesus is saying, don't resist. This is a primary command. Don't resist. Don't oppose an evil person. The the problem here is that the Pharisees were using the law of retribution, the law of lex talionis, in order to uh, emphasize uh, always getting back at someone. If someone took advantage of them, then they would use this to get get back at them. And Jesus says, if someone is taking advantage of you, don't make an issue out of it. Don't resist them. Use some grace orientation and move on. And uh, so it should be translated an evil person or wicked person, somebody who is seeking to take advantage of you. Uh, verse 39, he then goes on, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek. Now, most of you are facing me, so if you're going to have two people standing facing each other, if I slap you with my right hand, which cheek am I hitting you on? I'm hitting you on your left cheek. Jesus is saying, uh, whoever slaps you on your right cheek. If I'm going to slap you on your right cheek, I'm not going to do it with my left hand. I'm going to backhand you. That is very insulting for somebody to just openly slap somebody with the back of their hand. And that was the metaphor, that was the idea, and that was how it was understood. If someone slaps you on your right cheek, if someone insults you, if someone is taking advantage of you, if someone is offending you, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. This isn't a verse that has to do with military application. It's not a verse that has to do with police application. It's a verse that has to do with an individual and how they respond to someone who may be insulting them or offending them at a personal level. Uh, We live in a world today where many people in this country just look for something to react to in offense. They easily want to take offense at something somebody says. 
And so they're constantly arrogantly, self-righteously reacting. We see this in a lot of areas related to racial problems in this country. Uh, a lot of politically correct speech and, and issues related to that all revolve around hypersensitive people who are looking for some something to react to and that somebody said, uh, and, and rather than just dealing with it in grace and blowing it off, and, and stepping past it and moving forward. So this all has to do with grace orientation. Now, next time, I want to come back and expand on this a little bit. Now that we understand the basic idiom, we'll, we'll look at a couple other things related to that next time. But Jesus is going to give three examples of how this is to be applied in terms of not resisting an evil person or someone who's seeking to take advantage of you. And we need to focus on each of those and develop them, and we just don't have the time this morning, so we'll come back and begin there next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, as we concluded, we're talking about grace orientation. And as Jesus continues in this discourse, he comes to the topic next of loving one another. We understand that grace is the greatest manifestation of your love, and, that great, and the greatest manifestation of that was at the cross. Father, we realize that we were hostile to you. We were antagonistic to you. And rather than treating that in a way where you just uh, deservedly sending, sent us to the lake of fire, you have instead, as it were, turned the other cheek, not taking offense, but you have provided a grace application, a grace solution to the great affront that we have given you by virtue of our disobedience and sin. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. Your son, whom you sent into human history, came for the purpose of solving the problem. Those who were obnoxious to you, those who had insulted you, those who had offended you, and Jesus took that penalty upon himself to pay the penalty on the cross for us that by simply trusting in you, we have eternal life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. He paid the penalty. All that you need to do, if you've never done it, is to believe that Jesus died for you, that he was buried, rose again, and that your sins are completely taken care of by Christ on the cross. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.